0: Section 1 of Is War Diminishing? by Frederick Adams-Woods and Alexander Balci. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Hari. Chapter 1. Introductory. Within the last 20 years, hundreds and hundreds of books and pamphlets have been published on the subject of war and peace, but these have been almost without exception, from the emotional, personal, and subjective point of view. It is strange that among the host of well-meaning pacifists, and the phalanx of sturdy militarists, where the assumption is rife that war is to cease or ought to cease. No one apparently has taken the pains to find out if war really is ceasing, No one has made appeal to the simplest facts of history bearing on the philosophy of war, namely, the dates of wars. The definite actual years of peace and of war that have accompanied the lives of successive generations of men. Are the periods of war declining and the periods of peace increasing? Can we conclude from a broad survey of history that the forces of evolution have tended to make warfare of less and less importance as the centuries are rolled on? May we not raise the question, is not war likely to be more important rather than less as time goes on? War, like any natural phenomenon, has a space as well as a time element. Wars may be less frequently than formerly, yet they may be greater in magnitude, involving larger proportions of the total population. They may be more brutally fought and subject to less interruption than in the olden times, and also the suffering may be greater even in spite of advancing knowledge and skill in the care of the wounded. The present war makes us quite willing to believe the most pessimistic assertions, whereas a few years ago a very large proportion of well-informed people would have scouted the idea that war was to be as important a factor in the future of man as it has been in the past. That is because the majority of people who study history do not learn anything from it, They read here and there as their fancy directs. They are as likely to have a false impression as a true one. The more they read, perhaps, the worse off they are, since they are sure to remember just that portion of history that will bend further their already warped judgement. Men who are effective as writers, speakers or political leaders are bound to have their theories, prejudices and convictions. Generally, the more powerful they are, the more hidebound bound are their beliefs, and the more dogmatic their assertions. They must speak ex cathedra. The public does not wish for proofs. It merely wishes to hear, well expressed, those ideas that happen to be in vogue in its own sect, caste, national, or party. All this is inevitable and natural. It ought to be fully realised that these gifted guides of public opinion may do a great deal of harm. They do not seek the truth. They injure the progress of truth. They waste time in fruitless discussion. They distract the world's attention from the true and only fountain source of information which is, and always must be, research. It was with wholesome disgust at the unscientific character of the publications of various peace societies that I began to collect these few humble facts. And why should there be several peace societies, one might ask? is to be such a thing as human rivalry even here. Perhaps the pacifists have been hard enough hit by the present manifestations of reality against theory. But when one re-reads the publications of some of these societies printed before the present war, and sees the way the persons who pride themselves on having the superior moral point of view openly disregard the truth, one is not very sympathetic if they suffer somewhat. Peace advocates start with the assumption. That their convictions are the only true moral principles they see a future civilization in which uniformity and helpfulness shall take the place of rivalry and brute force the militarists reply as a matter of fact most military people do not reply at all because they are largely men who do things rather than men who discuss things militarist philosophers we might say of the teutonic type reply that success in modern war is essentially intellectual a matter of brain and eye not of leg and biceps, of organisation and leadership, of discipline, control, and self-sacrifice. In a word, it is the farthest removal from the brutal, in the sense of being animal, low. in the scale of organic evolution, a nation at war is the most highly complex organic aggregate that we know anything about. Man has arrived at control of nature because he is a fighting animal, and more than the other animals, he fought his way forward by reason of his brain. All the leading races of the world that are descended from the conquerors of the world. The progressive whites of Western Europe and Northern America are essentially conquerors. The Japanese, the only progressive people in Asia, are essentially conquerors. The world's future progress will depend on what kind of people control its service and dominate its activities. Here, then, is a true altar for the highest moral sacrifice, devotion to the great complex aggregate to which you by nature belong work and duty, with hope and indeed conviction that your nation and race is to survive and play its part in the future. What larger ideal does man really know than this? What evidence has nature ever given that she wants all races to survive? Everything indicates that some races sink. Do you wish it to be yours? Do you wish to have your children subject to a race whose ideals seem repugnant compared to your own? Each according to his own, as he sees the right must fight for the right as he sees it. There can be no higher glory. It is not with a wish to place the moral standard of the militarists above that of the pacifists I give their point of view. I do not even attempt to show that there is just as much to be said on this side as on the other. I do not pretend to know anything of moral questions and am not much interested in them at present except to raise this protest. As a man of science, I should like meekly to ask these professors of ethics, law, and justice, these presidents of colleges, these moral educators, if morality is not necessarily bound up with truth. The pacifists have a right, I take it, to start with a subjective assumption based on their own inner feelings, but they certainly have no right to pervert the facts by ignoring or denying all unwelcome truths. The type of ideal of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Is shown in one of the publications of the American Association for International Conciliation, written by a prominent member of their executive committee and also trustee of the Carnegie Endowment. The cynic smiles, as well he may. Human nature is not to be made over in a day, or in a year, or in a century. But the man who is clear sighted enough to perceive and to understand the everlasting force of a moral principle will not cease to work for its accomplishment because the time of that accomplishment is in the far distance. Moreover, there are many things with the range of practical international politics that can be begun at once and done speedily. All this philosophy of civilization was presupposed by the trustees of the Carnegie Endowment when they began their work. They perceived that the minds of men must be convinced that morality is a higher principle than brute force, and that it must be proved to the satisfaction of public opinion and the balance of individual social and political gain is on the side of peace and international friendship. In other words, no matter whether the balance of social and political gain is on the side of peace or on the side of successful war, we shall pretend that it is on the side of peace. The writer goes on in the following words: To accomplish these ends, elaborate and prolonged studies, highly scientific in character, must be made in their results published to the world. A little further down the page he says, It will not be long before the publication of the results of these scientific undertakings will begin, and it may safely be predicted not only that the volumes containing them will constitute an indispensable library for the pacifist, but also that they will contain material which, in the hands of skilled and experienced propagandists, can be made to count heavily in the enlightenment of public opinion elsewhere. Again, the cynic smiles but this time at what constitutes in the minds of some people a highly scientific method. But the cynic will certainly agree that it may be predicted that the volumes will be used by the propagandists. Such, then, is a frank confession of the way one prominent pacifist regards the problem. In another pamphlet called The Dawn of World Peace, William Howard Taft states... The battlefield, as a place of settlement or disputes is gradually yielding to arbitral courts of justice. The interests of the great masses are not being sacrificed, as in former times, to the selfishness, ambitions and aggrandizement of sovereigns, or to the intrigues of statesmen unwilling to surrender their sceptre of power. Religious wars, happily, are spectres of a medieval or ancient past, and the Christian church is laboring vainly to fulfil the destiny of peace on earth. Professor Edward L. Thorndike, writing from the psychologist's standpoint in 1911, and apparently influenced by an essay of William James's on the same subject, shows how deluded a man who usually bases his statements on quantitative research may become when he launches into the flowery domain of the philosophy of history. Professor Thorndike ignores the important fact that we cannot yet dogmatize as to the causes of war. He seems to assume that armed conflict arises from something in the minds of the common people, some natural longing for excitement and adventure, that has to be satisfied somehow, and might be vicariously satisfied in some other form of daring. He takes no cognizance of the uniform and willing peacefulness of men during periods of peace, until they have been inspired to go forth to war. It would seem that in 1911, Professor Thorndyke did not expect that there would be much more war, he writes as follows, We are all learning that a righteous cause is a cause for war, and that when the wrong done by the war is less than the right it preserves. Nor will there be in the future any such readiness as there has been in the past to assume that the war which someone is interested in stirring up is really in the defence of national warfare. He takes no account of the actual grouping of mankind into more or less definite units until more or less centralised control from the top. Or, if he does, he assumes that this, in the future, is to disappear. Whereas, in fact, perhaps it is to increase. Who knows? The superficial and subjective interpretation of history, the complete misunderstanding as to war's causation, is well shown in pamphlet number 70 of the same International Conciliation Association. This was written in September 1913, As the author has expressed, most of the commonplace pacifist ideas, world as a unit, interdependence of the nations, delicacy of international credit, etc., a full quotation of the last paragraphs from this publication will serve as an expression of some of the theories of this sect. It must be conceded that the predictions have not been fulfilled. Within the unification of Germany and the freeing of the Balkan states, the centre of gravity of international politics shifted from Europe to the conflicting spheres of interest in Asia and Africa. A long period seems now about to ensue of adjustment of powers and influence accompanied by inevitable boundary and trade and colonial disputes. It will all be accomplished with a fraction of the bloodshed and labour that was wasted on a similar process in Europe. The Hague Court provides the machinery for the settling of the legal questions involved, The political questions will be settled by diplomatic negotiation and international conferences and commissions. Slowly we may expect, as an international public opinion is formed, to see a body of criminal international law developed, and the most crucial questions of international interests resolved by arbitration. Meanwhile, none of the media can be neglected. The peaceful settlement of international disputes, based on rivalries of prestige, must be the supreme aim of the peace movement. Such a peaceful settlement is being furthered by the recognition that is rapidly permeating the minds of the Western peoples that the world is a unit. The wits of diplomats are being sharpened by the discovery that war does not pay. International conference negotiation has become an actual economic necessity. The enormous development of industrial technique during the last century. The utilisation of natural resources, combined with the existence of a flood of capital ready to flow to any part of the earth that needs it in its economic development, have produced an economic interweaving and independence of the nations that is without parallel in history. Capital knows no country. By foreign investment, nations are knit together in bonds which defy all irrational prejudices and sudden or age-long jealousies. There is an international system of credit so delicate that a shock at any point means calamity to the entire fabric. The successful conquest of one nation by another would simply mean the destruction of the financial prosperity of the conqueror. Even the conquest of an undeveloped country like Tripoli hardly redounds to the prosperity of Italy. For the latter will depend upon foreign capital for the development of the resources and the riches of Tripoli will drain away to the profit of the financially capable nations. The idea is also seeping down through the racial consciousness of the Western peoples that war is physically suicidal as well as economically unprofitable. War eliminates not the unfit, as its admirers so fondly claim, but the fittest and best. Europe is weaker, not stronger, for the men she has lost in war. This country is mentally and morally feebler for the slaughter of her finest manhood in the civil war. The very perfection of armaments and the terrific drain of cost is already making war almost impossible. The nations are now on the verge of bankruptcy, and actually do not dare to fight. These are the economic and psychological forces that are driving physical aggression and coercion from the field of international relations, and bringing diplomacy and arbitration to the front, not as supplements but as actual substitutes for war. The various institutions which we have considered above are becoming the institutional expression of a world consciousness, analogous to the consciousness of ethnic or national unity. A real feeling of internationality is being born. While we have been hoping, the nations have become linked in an interweaving of interests so powerful that the successful functioning of each part depends upon the prosperity of every other part. Worldwide arbitration or world federation will be but the recognition of the fact that war is world suicide. Nations will fight only when the world has lost all its hope and all its sanity. Another publication called The Phases of Progress Towards Peace by President S.C. Mitchell of the University of South Carolina dwells much on the optimistic side of the case. He writes as his selfish national interests hardly existed. The world has shrunk to the dimensions of a township. All men are neighbours, as Rado has a good deal to say about the value of neutralisation and agreements to delimit war. Thus, Belgium is among the specially favoured nations. Just as the benefits of freedom presented in the Northwest are permanent contrasts to slavery, so any sphere of civilization dedicated to peace will serve as a standing argument against the senselessness of seeking to determine questions of international justice by vast military establishments for organised murder. In fact, the neutralization of such countries as Belgium and Switzerland are a present application to war of the very principle of geographical delimitation, which prove effective in dealing with slavery. Delimitation of war by curtailing the category of questions which may give rise to war on the part of such signally conspicuous nations as England, France, and America would amount. To a demonstration of the effectiveness of reason over brute force in the attainment of justice that must prove irresistible to mankind all this written a few years ago reads sadly enough just how not only have we been told that in this commercial age the great banking interest controlled the question of peace and war but we have been assured that the great force of international socialism would render impossible a worldwide conflict the socialists claimed to total ten or twelve million votes and thirty million or more adherents. Judging from their talk at international congresses, there seemed little likelihood that the great bodies of socialist workmen could be easily induced to take up war. But no people were quicker to fly to arms than these same socialists. Their protest was practically nil. Instead of holding together in united brotherhood, each faction is now calling the other traitor. The socialists, like the pacifists, were a complete misunderstanding as to the psychology of war and the position of war as a phenomenon in human evolution. They completely misjudged the primordial instincts and falsely prophesied through lack of fundamental knowledge, either biological or historical. The activities of the militarists, a few years ago in England and in France, are now gratefully accepted by all classes. It is not probable that many are wishing that they have been less well prepared. Discussion has given place to action. There is no time at present for anything else, but after this war is over, or seemingly over, there will be a great deal of discussion about the question of permanent peace. When that time arrives, it is to be hoped that the present Catechism will have shown the theorists how tremendously complicated the problem is, and that they will treat the question with more humble regard. The criticisms that I have brought forward have been made not with the idea of useless ridicule, but to illustrate the complexity of the problem and the need of of honest systematic research. Much that is one-sided might also be found in writings of the extreme militarists. There is one idea in particular, often quoted either by them or brought up against them, that is now in poor repute. That is the contention of armies preserve the peace, or are for the purpose of preserving the peace. The advocates of universal peace naturally say, the present war has absolutely disproved the contention that strong militarism will preserve the peace. The militarists ought never to have said that an army was to preserve the peace. If they had spoken frankly, they would have said that the function of an army is to win in war. This idea during times of peace being repugnant to the popular mind, it has always been Thought, the proper thing for each nation to speak of its own army, as an army of defence. Since at any time in history, other nations are growing and gaining in strength, and others are becoming less strong. It is impossible that all armies should be armies in defence. All armies that are relatively growing are potentially, presumably, armies of conquest. When the trial comes, they may or may not meet the test. Since wars usually cannot come out exactly even, either these armies of potential conquest become armies of real conquest, or else if they are beaten, some other armies prove to have been indeed an army of potential conquest. One does not need to multiply instances to show how confused and gratuitous are most of the utterances upon the philosophy of war. If one were studying the philosophy of vice, it would not be thought unfitting to admit that the problem was a hard one, that human frailty and passion had existed since time immemorial that human nature had changed but little of it all, that a phenomenon that had been in existence for thousands of years would probably show itself to some extent 100 or 200 years hence. What, then, is the reason that well-meaning and intelligent people are not prepared to take the same attitude about war, or to accept the view that war is likely to exist in some form and to some extent one or 200 years hence? Probably the difference lies in this. One is a constant phenomenon while the other is intermittent. Vice is to some extent always present and is constantly brought to our attention by the daily press. War, on the other hand, occurs with long interruptions, so that whole generations of men may live and die without ever experiencing it. Furthermore, all emotional and bodily feelings, passions and instinctive responses are very difficult to conjure up when they are not actually felt. Just think, even, how difficult it is in the cold of winter to conceive that we shall ever again suffer from extreme heat, or vice versa. On a frightfully hot day in summer, to imagine Arctic cold under ordinary conditions, it is questionable if any one can imagine the agonies of thirst suffered by a man lost in the desert. A nation at war is in a different instinctive and emotional state from a nation at peace. It has responded to instincts not called forth in times of peace, tribal and gregarious instincts always potentially present in all groups of men, but lying dormant until required. The war instinct is probably a different thing from the fighting instinct. These instincts may have a relative beginning far back in early organic evolution, but they now seem distinct both in their origin and their utility. The fighting instinct in the true sense of the word is not useful. In fact, it would go very badly with a man who had the fighting instinct. If a man goes around fighting everybody, he does not last long. In the far west, just before the vigilante days, there were just one moment, so to speak, in the world's history when the real fighting man prospered. Some of those early desperados, like Boone, Helm, and Henry Plummer, lasted a long time. They killed many a good man, but sooner or later the Vigilantes got them all. The law-abiding element grew, and the outlaw element declined, and soon the early days in the Far West became a closed chapter, and a chapter that we can now say was unique. I think it is safe to say that there never was before in the whole written history of the world any time like that in the early West, when a man could walk about killing people and keep it up. Such a social order or rather disorder shows us by its own qualities how wonderfully free from fighting and killing ordinary daily human intercourse is. Let us picture to our minds the life of the early cities of antiquity Thebes, Babylon, and Tyre and the smaller communities as well. We can conceive of these people quarrelling much, but not of a man single-handed holding up the town, nor can we suppose that there was much killing within any one town or city, not indiscriminate killing outright, but left by individuals, and the organised killing by groups and factions. The most primitive and savage society shows the same thing. There is much killing of one tribe by its neighbour tribe, but a man who killed within his own tribe would certainly become unpopular. In days of old, in sparsely settled regions, the highwayman flourished, but that is exactly my point, That is the group formation of men that necessitates the life of peaceful citizenship. The natures that have not been willing to adapt themselves to the environment of groups have been weirded out. The quarrelsome types have tended to disappear. Throughout all the ages, and for about half the time, groups have fought against other groups. That is the reason why the war instinct, in contradiction to the fighting instinct, has taken a different course. There has been little of any natural selection tending to eliminate the war instinct it has been useful for obvious reasons. No natural groups of men could have been evolved without the gregarious warring instinct, since the groups that were relatively deficient in the qualities that hold men together would be just the ones that would as a group crumble away. Hence some groups must from time to time be growing and strengthening themselves at the expense of others. Some survived groups are always present and may be regarded as living entities endeavouring to preserve their form. They are to a certain extent natural, to a certain extent artificial. That is to say, they in part depend on racial similarities, but also to a great extent on political accidents changing with the oft-shifting outline of the political frontiers. These groups should never be thought of as absolutely definite entities with clearly cut-out lines. Not like animal species, or rather should be thought of as varieties and sub-varieties with vague geographical boundaries and more or less of a tendency to hold together as a unit. They are much more liable than our animal varieties to sudden splittings and rearrangements, so that the history of European warfare presents, in the ever-changing alliances, a kaleidoscopic picture. The natural enemies of any group are its nearest surrounding groups, but some of these may be, for the time being, its friends and allies. It all depends on the exigencies of the political situation. The result of it all is that today, or at any day up to the present, practically every young or middle-aged man is ready to respond to the call for arms when the gregarious fighting instinct is stimulated. It is essentially a gregarious incident; therefore, only after many persons are already affected, is its full force felt. That is also why, in the initiative stages of the ebullition, the action of a comparatively small number of persons counts for so much, if they in any way exercise a practical control or leadership. The instinct is there simply because it is an instinct, and therefore, like all instincts inherited in the germplasm of the race, it matters not whether a man's immediate ancestors did or did not actually take part in warfare. The reason why it makes no difference is because acquired traits are not inherited, that is, if they are acquired from the environment, acquired from educational practice. Biologists are in almost universal accord on this point. Therefore, as is often the case in the history of man, one whole generation of a race lives through maturity and dies never experiencing war, but the war instinct is not the least lessened thereby. If these human problems are to be treated scientifically, they must be tested in the objective spirit of inquiry. The first need in science, at least in inductive sense, is to collect the facts. We must first collect all possible facts about war. Next, we must analyse and classify these facts. This will lead to some understanding as to A. Causes of war B. Results of war Among the causes of war, we may provisionally postulate racial, economic, religious, and personal causes. Among the results, we must try to weigh not only the evils, but also the possible benefits. The intellectual and moral, as well as the political and economic effects, the aftermaths of war, and their relations to industrial, commercial, literary, and artistic activity. In weighing all these results of war, distinctions must be made between successful and unsuccessful war, for it is highly improbable that the effects can be the same on the nations that win as on the nations that lose. Then again, the interests of certain portions of the nation are not identical with the interests of the nation as a whole. For instance, a successful war waged in a foreign country may not benefit the rank and file among the conquerors, but the officers and the families of the officers and the governing classes in general may as a caste profit much in the extension of wealth and power. Another obscure question, one that has been much discussed and but little studied, is the relationship of war to eugenics. What is the selective survival of war and its influence on the race and on the evolution of mankind? This selection must have its good side as well as its bad. The evils are obvious and have been much exploited. The removal by war of the strongest and the leaving at home of the weakest to propagate the race is bound to have as a result a physical deterioration of the population concerned. On the other hand, critics have contended that the great mortality of war is really an advantage to the race, because within the army itself, those who can survive hardship and disease must be by nature stronger than those who succumb. Also in modern warfare, cunning and resourcefulness count for a great deal. It seems highly probable that more than ever before superiority in intelligence is a great asset among fighting men. The way this works out in relation to survival of the fittest is curiously interesting. It must be admitted that among all the millions who today are firing at each other, either shells or bullets, the men who are the most accurate with gun or rifle are, other things equal, doing the most killing. Other things are, of course, not equal. Success depends on various factors, Amount of ammunition, rapidity of transport, good leadership, etc, etc. But the fact remains that in spite of it all, the best shots are killing more people than the poor shots have. Then it follows that the best shots are themselves less often killed than are the poor shots, after any interval of time. To make this clear, it is perhaps necessary to imagine an extreme instance. Suppose two trenches contain 100 men each that one trench be supposed to be filled with extraordinary good shots, the other with extremely poor ones. Then after an interval of time, nearly all the men in the trench of poor shots would have been hit, while only a very few among the good shots would have been hit. The same principle holds, no matter how the men are distributed, and the best shots will be themselves less often struck. It has not occurred to the individual soldier to think of his chances of survival through the war being enhanced by the fat is a good shot. That is because so many other factors enter in that main more to him personally. It makes a great difference to his chances personally where he happens to be sent. He may very likely be killed by a shrapnel or by a bayonet, but on the average for all the soldiers on both sides this factor counts toward the selection for survival of a certain kind of superiority. It is highly improbable that superiority in handling modern weapons is not correlated with general mental superiority. So it is with other forms of killing. If it be admitted that intelligence is a factor at all, then the more intelligent must themselves tend to escape from the mere fact that they tend to do more of the killing. If strength and intelligence are of any value in a bayonet charge, then just so far as they tend to do the killing of opponents, so they must tend to the survival of their possessors. With artillery, indirect fire, telephones, wireless, and modern machine guns, intelligence must count for a good deal in the successful destruction of the enemy. Then it counts that much toward the survival of those who do the destroying. Another matter that is very often mentioned is a percentage of officers to men among the killed and wounded. Returns usually show a regrettable disproportion of officers among the casualties. This is said to the average quality of the blood of the nation it does of course lower the average but it must be remembered that as a question purely of the evolution of man man has not evolved essentially by a raising of the average it is a rise in the intelligence of a very small percentage of all mankind that has been the feature in the growth of civilization It has always been the same in all organic evolution the world today is farther advanced in evolution than it was in the Carboniferous Age. Not because the average of all types of life is higher, but because some of the types are higher. Some may have sunk even lower in the scale of life. It is the same in the evolution of the mammals and the appearance of man among the mammals. Great things have happened, not because all the mammals progressed, but because one out of a very great number progressed. If the officers constitute 1%, and the soldiers 99%, the officers might be reduced to three-quarters of one percent. There would be loss in the average of the whole, but the three-quarters that remained among the officers might by selection be superior on the average to the one percent there at the start. In whatever light we may view all these difficult questions, the great fact remains that somehow man has evolved and he has fought presumably half the time. If warfare is so deleterious, it may be asked, how did we get where it is? We have thus seen how difficult the complication is the philosophy of war, yet most writers have been content to take one side or the other of the issue, so that we have scarcely begun to have a science on the subject. With the hope that some day this tremendously important problem may be better understood, let us examine and discuss a few primary facts. End of section one.